Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Men in Mind podcast, with your host, Tom Brewer. My guest today is someone who's been a constant presence on our TV screens for nearly two decades. During that time, we've got to know Greg Wallace pretty well, for his honest talking, his larger-than-life personality, oh, and the fact he loves a good pudding. But how much do we know someone really? Because behind this confident TV persona, Greg is, well, pretty much like the rest of us. The same insecurities, the same anxieties, and the same self-doubt all on his journey from Peckham Greengrocer to Primetime Star. It's why he's a perfect guest for this podcast, to show men they're not alone if they're struggling and encourage them to open up. And during the course of an hour, Greg was very much true to his word, as he showed remarkable honesty opening up about himself, about subjects deeply personal to him. Now just to let you know that today's episode covers topics that some people may find difficult, including anxiety, alcohol use, and the historic treatment of people in mental health institutions. Right towards the end, it also discusses child sexual abuse and includes brief but direct references to acts of abuse. So just be prepared to skip that bit forward. For anyone who needs some support, go to mind.org.uk. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy. Um, Greg, how are you? I'm actually okay. Good. I'm, a, I'm actually actually all right. My beautiful wife is Italian, and in Italian they would say, "Io sono molto contento." I'm very happy. Oh, that's a good, that was a good bit of Italian there. Thank you, 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 how are you. How are you quite good at languages? No, 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 no. I still haven't mastered English. But um, <laughs> but having a wife uh, with an Italian family and going to Italy a lot, yeah. uh, I picked up a, a bit, a bit. Restaurant, restaurant, and coffee bar Italian. I've got. <laughs> but I'm, but I'm well. I'm, I'm, I'm happy. Oh, well, honestly, it's a, it's a real pleasure to have you on, uh, on Men in Mind. And uh, my, my first question, I suppose, is quite a big one in many respects because at the heart of this podcast is sort of to encourage men to talk about their mental health, and it's something which you've been quite open about previously. And in fact, you've talked a lot about having therapy. Not half, <laughs> mate. It's an incredible thing. It's a wonderful thing. I mean, I, I can't speak for anybody else, but personally, I've, I've had major anxiety issues over the years and it has been put right with good therapy. And I've learned um, coping techniques through therapists. I've had, I've had two. In all my time, I've had, I've had two, two therapists, uh, ladies, who have been marvellous, absolutely marvellous. I'm still really good friends with Jackie. 
Um, and I meet her for coffee and I don't talk to her about my issues, but I, but I could do. Uh, yeah, I, I would highly recommend it. Highly recommend it. If you were unwell, you would go and see a professional. And you are unwell if you have got issues. You are, if you've got mental issues, you are unwell. The good news is it can be treated. The bad news is you've got to go and see someone to treat it. You will not cure it yourself. So where were you, Greg, in your life when you made that decision to have therapy? Was it, on, was it after Strictly? No, it was during Strictly. I was having a really tough time. I was really, really stressed, um, really suffering major anxiety. I'd always had anxiety issues so badly that the side of my face broke out into a rash. I've never, like, like cold sores, but up the side of my face, that was the, the stress I was under. I was having a really, really tough time. And somebody had recommended Jacqueline to me, Jacqueline Hurst, who's now a friend of mine. She looked after me for ages, now a friend of mine. And I went to see her and she started talk to me, talking to me about stuff. I didn't really mention Strictly. And then I was on Strictly and I was due to do a dance that night. And I called her up and said, are you free? Can you come and help me? She jumps in the car. I got parking for her and she came into my dressing room. And actually put me right. And what she said to me was absolute genius. Absolute genius. She said, listen, Greg Wallace, as important as you think you are, nobody, I'm going to swear because she said, she swore, she went, no one gives a shit what you dance like, mate. As important as you think you might, you might be, no one gives a shit whether you can dance or not. All right. I was like, okay, okay. She went, look, this is going to hurt, but I'm going to make this right. I might get emotional here. Because she knew about my background. Uh, leaving home at 15, being thrown out of school at 15. She said, when you were sleeping on people's sofas without any prospects and no qualifications, what would a 15-year-old Greg Wallace say? He'd go, is that me on the television? This is amazing. She said, and what would you say to a 15-year-old Greg Wallace right now? And I was getting really, I was, I was in tears by now. But I've repeated this story a couple of times, so I'm feeling better about it, but it's still emotional. I, she said, what would you say to a 15-year-old Greg Wallace? I'd say, mate, you haven't got to worry about a thing. Don't be scared. You're going to be about to embark on the biggest adventure of your life. You won't believe what's going to happen to you. She went, right. He's going to be sitting in the audience watching. Go out there and enjoy yourself. That's amazing. It was really powerful. She had me in floods and floods of tears in the dressing room. And then I went out and I did it and I was fine. It was all right, was it? It went, it went okay. I went out, but I wanted to get out by then. I was that. I found it really, really hard. Had you ever had a, any of those emotions before? I've suffered anxiety for years, and uh, I found out it's through low self-esteem. You'd never imagine it, would you? You would <laughs> never imagine it. Um, low self-esteem, uh, lots and lots of self-doubt, lots and lots of anxiety, far too much uh, care about what other people think of me and the image that I might be projecting, far too much care. Even now, my wife, who's quiet, sensible, level-headed. She said, why have we got to have dessert, Greg? I said, well, the pastry chef is going to be upset if I don't sample the dessert. She said, why do you care? Why do you care? I said, well, it's a nice restaurant. I've tasted the savoury stuff. The pastry chef, if I don't taste their food, they're going to... She's like, mate, get over it. Do you want dessert? Not really. Well, then let's get the bill and go. Did you, try, did you try and unpick why you've got this low self-esteem? Was it purely from your, was it from your upbringing? No, we never, we never went back that far. It's just, it's just learning how to deal with it. 
rather than, listen, I, I don't know what techniques are in play by different mental professionals. Uh, I just know having coping techniques for, for, for when it happens and also lots of catastrophizing. This might happen, that might happen, this might happen. Um, therapist said to me, the issue is <laughs> that you've come far too high up the mountain than you were supposed to. So when you look down, that's a long way to fall. Going back to sleeping on sofas, sofa surfing, having no money, having holes in your shoes and not being any money to replace them, you're never going to fall that far. That's where you started. If you fall, you'll fall onto the ledge below. That's not base camp. So don't worry about it. <laughs> And when you spoke when you spoke about this with your therapist, did it was it almost as if someone had turned on a light and you suddenly understood some of the issues at play? It took a while. Mm. It, it 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 took a while. You're so wrapped up in working hard and pushing and pushing and pushing because you keep thinking that that's going to make you happy, where it doesn't actually. What I've learned through therapy is the difference between happy and unhappy is what you tell yourself, mm. and it simply is that. It's, it's, it's what you tell yourself. Another good, um, when you're catastrophizing, another good, uh, good practice that I learned from therapy was uh, when you're worried about something happening, what's the likelihood of that happening? Pretend you're in one of those old black and white courtroom dramas. Try and convince a jury <laughs> that what you fear is going to happen is actually going to happen. If, if you can't convince the jury, the chances are it probably won't happen. <laughs> was it weird just opening up in the first place? Because I interviewed Simon Cowell for this podcast, and he said that first knock on the therapist's door was terrifying. That first sitting down in your seat, ready to unload, he said that he was very nervous about it. Did you have any sort of similar thoughts? No, no, I, wanted, I just wanted to be put right. I, I, was, I was fed up with being scared just fed up with being scared. I just, I just wanted a, I wanted somebody to tell me what was going on. Why was I always scared of losing my job? Why was I always scared of losing my house? Why was I always scared of, of being poor? I mean, fear of poverty, because I've experienced it. I mean, listen, poverty, like wealth is relative. Okay. Um, but I, 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 I've, I've felt keenly that I had no money when I was, when I was a young person. And that, really scares me so and even 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 as i was doing really well i wasn't getting less scared in fact i was getting more scared and i just wanted somebody to to explain it to me and give him give me coping mechanisms for it so you don't live your life in fear i've got a mate a good mate called dr kev dr kev dutton he lectured psychology at one of the Top universities. I can't. I ever can't ever remember whether it was Oxford or Cambridge. He also worked with elite groups like SAS and SBS. He said, in some ways, Greg, that anxiety is the price of ambition. He said, and I don't want to. Now I don't go to him for help. We just <laughs> we just we're mates. He said, you don't want to mess around with that too much. You know, obviously you've been to therapy when things are really bad, but that anxiety may come allied with the ambition yeah that's interesting yeah it's interesting he said every every elite soldier every sportsman every tv person every rock star i've ever interviewed are always the same because you keep having to go out and 
not like any other job that you get qualifications for, a sportsman or a singer or an actor or a presenter or even obviously elite soldiers, you have to keep performing. And you're judged every time by your performance. He said, that that's where that anxiety goes. So I'm glad you're better, but I wouldn't take it away completely. When you were suffering anxiety through these moments where you write about money and your job and where the next job comes from, how did you deal with that anxiety? Because a lot of people, they, they drink more, they eat unhealthily. Yeah, don't, don't, don't. The, the, the drink can make it go away temporarily and it will just come back twice as bad the next day. No, don't do that. No, I went, I went and got help. I went and got help. I went and got, and um, and we we talked about it, and I was given the reasons why it happened, and coping mechanisms for it. Um, I've got a list that I've that I got eight nine years ago that it's on my on my phone. Things to check in with yourself on your phone. That's a good idea. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I I had it in um, in hard copy, and I just typed it onto onto my phone. I could get it up now, and it's just a number of questions that you ask yourself. When you, I can't remember exactly what they are because, luckily, I haven't had to go to it for 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 a while. But it's like, how strong are these feelings? What's it built on? And it's and it's it's stuff like chances are it isn't going to happen. You have strength within. Learn about yourself, investigate it. It and it and it really really helped because I used to not be able to go on holiday without getting anxiety attacks i've had times when i've been on holiday with my wife and i've been with anna for 10 years we were talking about it actually how i've got better um i used to have to go to my hotel room and not come out and try and plan things on pen and paper what my life was going to be like and how i was going to making plans but you can't you can't stop worrying about the future by planning the future you've got to try and stay in the here and <laughs> the here and now the more you try and when you're having an anxiety attack, the more you keep trying to race off into the future, the worse your anxiety gets. You've got to anchor yourself back where you are, back where you are. I think that's very sound advice. What, what were you like? That's, that's basically Buddhism as well, isn't yeah. it, from what I understand? Yeah, that's true. That's mm. true. What were you like in those moments when you were suffering those anxieties? Oh, just um, heart rate going up, a tightening of the chest, uh, just fear, just fear. Um, rate of breathing and ju just a just a knot in your chest almost like burning hand shaking it's interesting isn't it really because if if you hadn't have done strictly if you hadn't have put yourself out of that comfort zone then you wouldn't have had the therapy and your life effectively has changed for the for the better yeah i think i may have gone to therapy but that was it was as i say you know your face breaking out into cold sores i don't mean on your lip i mean up the side of my face mm -hmm was a clear indication that something was very badly wrong. And uh, calling for Jacqueline, uh, yeah, it made me then open up and seek help in lots of different ways. I don't think it ever cured. I think you just, with help, professional help, you learn coping mechanisms. You begin to identify when it's coming. You begin to understand the reasons why it's coming mm. and then how to deal with it once it's there mm. somebody said to me once i won't tell you who but they're quite well known said well everybody suffers from anxiety it's just how you deal with it no 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 if you can deal with it you haven't got anxiety that's a worry if you can mm. deal with it that's not anxiety mm. what people love about you greg is that unlike a lot of people in this in in, in this industry you came to tv relatively late in life you had this whole career beforehand so people can relate to you more 
I think also, yeah, I was I was almost 40 before I started TV proper. And I think by 40 years old, you're pretty much who you are going to be. That's who you are already. But by the time you're 40 years old, that's who you're going to be. I think if you'd have become famous at 20, I think it could have messed around with you, really messed around with you. But at 40, you know, I was a greengrocer. I've already been up at 3, 4 in the morning lugging bags of carrots around at like minus six. You know, you, you kind of, you, you've, you've been there. And um, I think it gives you a, a better appreciation of stuff. Um, so you're quite a leveled person. I think for years and years, I mean, most people know me for MasterChef. And of course, I work with John Sirode, or I work with Marcus and Monica, but it's not just me on my own. Do you know when he's down or when, when does he look out, look out for you? Yeah, we look out for each other. People don't understand our relationship at all. The papers, papers keep saying, oh, they're not really mates, mate. There's nobody I'm closer to than John Sirode. And he knows me and I know him really well. We've been, we've been working together for eight months of the year for 20 years. And we knew each other for 10 years before that. And uh, he knows if I'm up or down. He doesn't say anything to anybody else. Rarely does he say anything to me, but I know he knows. Mm. I know he knows. And then he steps up his game and takes on a lot of the responsibility. And I'd like to think I'd do the same for John, although I don't, John doesn't have the ups and downs that I do. But he, he, he more, than any, more than anybody outside my, my family, knows me. It's so important for men, isn't it, having that outlet. It could be your, your partner, it could be your, your mate, you know, it could be your work colleague, to be able to talk to and have the confidence in which to be able to do so yeah i think we're we're nervous of being kind of like self-obsessed but i think that's all right on telly because most presenters are anyway because you're trading in yourself as a commodity so i think the people around you are, are used to it but my relationship with john is so solid and people don't understand and why would they we're not going to discuss we're not going to discuss this stuff but um yeah i i feel really really safe working with john i think that's why this relationship has worked so long, so well for so long. I, I feel completely safe with him. I could tell him anything. And you probably don't even need to tell him. He, he, he already knows, which is, which is great. <laughs> what was the transition like from, your, from being a businessman to moving into television for someone who suffered periodic episodes of anxiety? Uh, telly is terrible for someone with anxiety. I mean, I've had the same PA, Helen, for 12 years. She went, my word, you picked the wrong profession, didn't you? She went, for someone who's like, who, who has ups and downs like you do, you've picked something that you have absolutely no control over. Uh, I'm better now because, listen, I'm nearly 60. I'm you know, almost close to retirement age, although I'm, I don't plan on retiring. So I'm not really looking to build a career in telly. Now I've got one. Um, but... Going, going from business to telly was really difficult for somebody like me who's, who, who just wants to be in control because he suffers from anxiety is because it's the only profession I've ever found so far that you can't progress through hard work. Business, you progress through hard work and learning from your mistakes. That's not true. That's not true of telly. Decisions are made by people whose dogs you don't even get to pat. That was my phone, sorry. That was Anna. Look, there you go. Look at that. Look, I love you. From Anna, from my Anna. That, that Anna, that young woman has had such an incredible positive impact 
on my life. So How long have you been married? We've been married for seven years. We've been together for 10 years. I was actually looking back at some of the newspaper stories of when we got together. Oh, really? What was that like? Will he never learn? Another young woman. So is Anna your fourth wife? Yes. Yes, 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 yes. yes. Um, and you know, I'm not any different with Anna than I was any of the others. I honestly believe, obviously, love can make a massive difference to your life. I tell you, some, someone else who's happiest I've ever seen them, and that's my mate John Tarone with Lisa. With Lisa. Yeah, the pair of us seem to have found proper support and comfort at the same time there, congratulating each other. Um, the uh, I've been with Anna for, for 10 years, my fourth marriage. I think I've just got really unlucky. Mm. And then with Anna, I feel like I've just got the golden ticket, the Willy Wonka golden ticket, or I've got the winning lottery ticket. Because I honestly believe that love is just like a, a lottery. It's just a complete game of chance. I mean, what are the chances of wandering around, finding somebody like Anna, who has always wanted what you have to offer? And at the same time, you really want what they're offering. Now, what is the chances of that happening? And because we evolve as people, the chances of the pair of you finding that, I think is just extraordinary. So I don't want to come across as Peter Perfect, but after three failed marriages, not because of womanizing, not because of bullying, not because of drinking or gambling or anything like that, just got it wrong. Well, got the first and the third one wrong. The second one, um, the kid's mum, she was really unwell, so she's no longer with us as well. So that I think is unfortunate. Um, but with Anna, just extraordinary. And I've heard people say a lot, well, you have to work at a marriage. And I think, do you? Because I've never worked at this in my life. And I'm sorry, as I can tell Anna's not putting in a, a tough shift either, are we? <laughs> are we? I don't think you, you know, we've never had an argument. We, talk, we actually we spoke about it um, yesterday evening over a Lancashire rock pot. That's incredible. You get disagreements, but we've never. Never had, no, never had an argument. And she knows when you're feeling down, and likewise. Oh, she doesn't have to. Yeah, I'll tell, almost, her. I'll almost, tell her. Just tell her. Yeah, yeah, tell her. And my mother-in-law, Rena. <laughs> yeah, just tell her. They're Italians. They, they, they like that. They sit, <laughs> they sit around, sit around the, with coffee, with a coffee pot on the kitchen table. You're supposed to go there and tell them your problems. That's what they're there for. <laughs> I read this very profound quote, actually, from you, and um, about uh, talking about marriage and how you rushed into your third marriage out of, out of loneliness. And I thought that was quite an interesting thing to say, an interesting admission. Yeah, well, there was more to it than that. And again, it's back to the insecurity, the massive insecurity and the self-doubt, okay? Um, Heidi modelled. She was much younger than me and striking looking. And I thought, wow, you're incredible. If I'd have waited, I'd have realised there was going to be lots of them because by now I'm on the telly. But I was so, it wasn't her. It was the concept of her. It was so wrong. But I thought, you look great. You look fantastic. You make me look fantastic. It was really badly right. And I was lonely. I've been lonely for, you know, I've been on my own since I was 15. Perhaps I ran in, rushed into marriages wanting the idea of, uh, of, of stability. But by then, I've got custody of my, by the time I meet Heidi, I've got custody of my children as well. There's me and, there's me and, <laughs> there's me and Tom and Libby. It's tough on your own. It really is, like, you know, hats off to any single parent. It, it's, it's tough. And I also thought that Heidi might be, because she was a teacher as well, might be good for the children. And she was really good for the children, actually, in terms of their education. But I should never have 
we should never ever have got together. It was it, it was wrong. It was through loneliness. It was also through insecurity. Insecurity, I have to admit. Mm. Those moments when you're lonely, what what were they like? <sighs> That's when I was. You, you go out. You go out a lot. You go out and you go out too much. And that's when I really started drinking. That's when the weight started piling on. That's when I got really, really unhappy. Yeah, really, really unhappy. Um, yeah, I was a, I was only child until I was 10. Then my middle brother Biffo came along. And then left home at 15. I think that that was, I think, they were the loneliest, darkest times, being on your own at that age. Uh, when you are living through something, you don't really contemplate it. You just get up every day and get on with it. It was when my children, Tom and Libby, reached 14, 15, 16, I looked and I thought, crikey, your children, your babies. I was out on my own, living on fried egg sandwiches and fish and chips if I could afford it, doing cleaning jobs, trying to get money together. I think that was the hardest and the loneliest time then. Mm. Tough stuff, this, isn't it? It really is. And I, you know, and I think... I don't want anyone's sympathy, by the way, because you do get on with stuff. You do, you do get on with stuff. I don't want to... I'm, I'm, I am painting a picture of it being tough, but I don't, I don't want the sympathy. I'm just, I'm just explaining the journey and how I've ended up with these, these, these issues and these issues that actually I went and got help for. As I'm talking about, it's quite clear to understand what's gone on and how you've made some of the decisions over love that you had, how you've ended up with anxiety issues that you have. But it also made me so ambitious. So, uh, listen, you make good money on the television. Uh, you make a good living. But I had a thriving business by the time I was 24 years old. So there are... There are always, the ambition is one of the benefits, I suppose, that came from the drive, the desire. To, to my son, Tom, complete contrast. I'm really proud of both my children, well, three of them. But Tom, my oldest boy, is on his way to being a chartered accountant and he is smashing exams, completely smashing exams. And he said to me, I have no desire for any ambition at all, Dad. Remember, I've lived with you all of my life. He said, there is no way I want to suffer what you suffer. I want the terri I want the semi-detached house. I want the wife and two children. I want a holiday, a family holiday every year. And I want a new car every three years. That is the limit. So I was like, good on you, son. <laughs> good, good on you. Because he sat beside me and watched the anxiety and the pressure. And he, he um, sees that as a consequence of ambition. Have they ever asked you to sort of step away from it all? No. No, my wife says a lot. Does she? Yeah, is this worth it? Is this worth it? My wife said to me, you're wonderful. You're wonderful and you provide for your family really well, but I'm not convinced you're doing it for us. Uh, I'm not going to stop you. I actually think you're doing it for you and maybe we don't need more. Mm. Perhaps it's you. So, you know, what do you want to do? Do you want to go and live in Italy? We... <laughs> do you want to stop now? And when will you stop? She said, my worry is 
that you'll reach the point you think that you're going to calm down and then that'll just be a springboard to the next thing. I don't know. We were talking beforehand about you've just come back from holiday. Um, you, Anna, and your, and your son, Sid. What was that like? Because mm. obviously Sid's um, he's autistic, isn't he? Oh, crikey. He, right now, Sid, Sid is, is non-verbal. He's four years old. He's in nappies. Um, he, there are so many foods he doesn't eat. He doesn't use cutlery. And I love him, love him, love him dearly. He's such a happy, cuddly, bouncy little boy. He's a lump as well. He's a big lump. He's like half the size of his mum already. But that was challenging. As a holiday, that was really, really challenging. Um, for those of you that got children, imagine a toddler you can't threaten or bribe. One that doesn't understand the concept of just be good. We'll be out of here in a few minutes or eat your ice cream and then afterwards we'll be gone. No concept. So when he is unhappy, he just makes noise to let you know he's unhappy and he wants to move on to the next thing. And that could be anyway. So you can't go out. With, you, can, you don't know how long your restaurant trip is going to last. You don't know. Um, when he gets up in the morning, if he can see the swimming pool, he wants to be out there and doesn't understand the concept of it's too cold at the moment. It was it was real. So we want to have holidays with Sid. I haven't spent so much time with Sid and we've come back even closer, me and that little boy, and you can clearly see it, um, it is, which is wonderful. And I want him to have a holiday. That, but the idea of it being a family holiday, as Sid is at the moment, I don't think that's going to happen. It has to be a Sid holiday. It has to be a Sid holiday. I think the most I sat on the lounger was eight minutes because, you know, we rented a house with a swimming pool. He needs supervision. He wanted to throw rocks into mm. the swimming pool and handfuls of dirt into the swimming pool. So, he could, so we, we, we brought two paddling pools so he could throw rocks and dirt into, into those instead. But every now and again, he'd, he'd, he'd forget. Um, so and then he'd want to climb the wall and then he'd want to, rip the plants up so we we had a we had a fortnight of just constantly following Sid around wherever wherever he was uh pushing him in a pram even though he, he's four years old because otherwise he might just want to wander off or, and he liked he liked being in the pram he liked going out for lunch to a certain extent for the first week by the second week he'd seen it he'd done it he didn't want it anymore um he loved his time in the pool he loved being with me, walking around the garden. He loved me singing to him. He suddenly realised that his dad knew the words to the songs that he was listening to on his iPad. Oh, really? <laughs> that, was a, that was a real moment for, for me and him. So we want to have more holidays, but you can't think they're going to be family holidays. In saying that, um, Sid is developing and we've got no idea what he's going to be like by next summer. We have no idea. But at the moment, we're not planning family holidays as such, like holidays that the whole family enjoy. We're planning holidays for Sid. And we know that they're going to be hard work for us. We'll have holidays, me and Anna, because mm -hmm. luckily we've got the grandparents at home. But the the family holidays will become Sid holidays, and where we know that we won't all be relaxing and sitting in the garden in the evenings drinking rosé wine or having long lunches. You obviously have a very close relationship with Annie. You've talked about how she, she basically changed her life. Mm. But does the pressure of, of 
dealing with dealing with these issues, dealing with his autism, does it affect the, the pair of you as a as a couple? I think it just shows the strength of my relationship with with uh, with my Anna. Um, in the past three years, Anna has had three stomach operations. She had a stoma, colostomy bag for a year. Uh, we then had a, then she, uh, a complete um, um, a hysterectomy, three operations on her stomach, um, and then an autistic little boy. And now her dad uh, with cancer. This has hit us one after mm -hmm. the other after the other. It hasn't rocked us at all. It's 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 made us stronger. It hasn't been easy to deal with. Not in any way. They are three big things, one after the other. Um, but Have you found the therapy and the techniques that you've learned have helped you through this? No, because funny enough, these aren't about me. The therapy was about me. Mm -hmm. I actually, if anything, um, I find a comfort in, in being there and, be, and being strong. Um, one thing you'd say as an older parent, I'm not sure a younger Greg Wallace would have dealt very well with such an autistic little Sid. Where the, the 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 patience of a of a Greg Wallace nearly sixty is far better than a Greg Wallace at twenty five. No, Anna, I care for Anna so deeply that uh, I wanted to look after Anna, um, Anna and Sid. I want to look after Sid. The only fear for me is that I'm so much older. I want, I'm now pushing, driving to earn more money, so that Anna and Sid are really safe when I'm not there. Because we don't know the care that Sid might need. Anna can't have any more children. Anna's an only child. I hate the thought of Anna struggling with an autistic son and not being able to cope. So that's 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 pushing and driving me around. Again, I don't want to paint this as a sad story. Um, it it only looks challenging reflecting on it. When that's your life, you get up every day and you get on with it. Same as the 15-year-old Greg Wallace leaving home and being thrown out of school. The same as the 60-year-old Greg Wallace with his father-in-law being unwell, his wife being unwell, and his son having issues. You, you, you get on with it. Um, Anna is not only one of the nicest people I've ever met, but also one of the strongest people I've ever met because it must be really tough for her at times as well. Obviously, you and Anna worked together on your on your wellness platform, mm -hmm. Show Me Fit. Oh, Greg Wallace Health, it'll be by then. So I, I, I shall ask that question yeah, again. Thanks. Greg Wallace Health. Yeah. Obviously, Greg, you've got this new platform called uh, Greg Wallace Health. Tell me a little bit about, about that because Anna's quite heavily involved, isn't she? Yeah, Anna's, Anna's, very, Anna's very, very involved in that. Um, I've helped thousands of people uh, lose weight and get healthier. And through that, hopefully, uh, mindset, hopefully happier as a consequence if they're not worrying about their health. And it's all about healthy eating, not dieting, not doing something ludicrously drastic like a diet or fasting or standing on one leg every Shrove Tuesday with your finger in your ear. Uh, it's all about preparing yourself for breakfast, lunch and dinner. And we have over 500 filmed recipes on there, and they're Anna's. Anna. Anna prepares the recipes, sends them to the nutritionist called Kat, who I've been working with now for four years. She okays them or says, Anna, add more veg. Anna, take out a little bit of the butter. Anna, add more protein. Anna then messes, plays with the recipes, and then 
films them herself, her hands doing them so that people can easily follow them. So yeah, she's an integral part of that <laughs> business. She's an integral part of everything I do. What we need to do now is make her a judge on MasterChef. <laughs> and obviously you've, you've been, um, you've lost loads of weight yourself. Mm. How, how many stone have you lost? Nearly five stone. Five stone. Yeah, I'm now 12 stone. I was almost 17 stone. But again, Anna. What to do with her? Well, so much to do with her. Can, can I tell you Anna's approach to alcohol, which is a Southern Italian approach? And oh, I, yeah. I think this might be very useful. And we discuss this a lot on Greg Wallace Health. Basically, look, there, there are three horsemen of the Get Fat Apocalypse. Takeaways, snacking and booze. And if you can, who's going to give up booze? I love a glass of wine, love a glass, I love a beer, love a fine whiskey. But so if you can stop snacking or reduce the snacking, if you can control the takeaways, reduce them right down. If you can manage your alcohol, mate, you're on your way to a healthier, slimmer you. Anna's approach to alcohol, I found enlightening. And as far as I can tell, it's a Southern Italian, it's an Italian approach, like a Southern European approach, as opposed to a colder Northern, Euro Northern European approach to alcohol. Anna said to me, when we first got together, and she wasn't nagging because she doesn't nag, she said, when you start drinking, it was a question, do you know when you're going to stop? And I was amazed. I said, do you? She was like, well, yeah. I went, well, she said, don't you? I was like, no. She went, well, so you carry on drinking till what? I went, I don't know. I said, well, what do you do? And she had, and she's not the only one, her family and other people I've spoken to, Spain, southern France, Italy, Anna and them, have a very clear idea of the effect they want from the alcohol. A really clear idea. So they know when they get there. They also feel the effects of the alcohol as it's affecting them. And this is what she's taught me. So I used to reach a happy place with alcohol, and many of my friends do, then carry on drinking at the same rate, thinking they would prolong that happy feeling. No, 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 you go somewhere else. You go somewhere else. So through Hannah's, Hannah's teaching, and she didn't know she was teaching me, the first drink, I'm neither here nor there. I don't really care. You know, it's like, all right. The second drink, that's when I reach the point of almost euphoria, which is the point we all want. The music sounds better. The food tastes great. I'm relaxed. Conversation seems easy. Mm. At that point, with Anna's instruction, I slow it right down because I want to prolong that happy feeling. What I used to do is carry on drinking at the same rate. So by the third, fourth drink, now, you've, the end of the fourth drink, you're repeating the same stories. By the fifth or sixth drink, you might be getting argumentative. By the seventh drink, you're singing at the top of your voice. And by the tenth drink, you're in tears. Now, <laughs> now I stop. Now I get to the second drink, and then I start to feel the effects. I'm like, whoa, okay, I'm getting there. This is nice. I'm getting there now. Do I want to get drunk? Probably not. Probably not. I've got nothing to run away from. I just want this happy, well, Slow it down. Slow it down and stay there. Uh, we just come back from the south of France. Right? Anna ordered a load of shopping to be there when we arrived. Actually, Anna's mum did. So I took these little beers into the garden with me and I drank two of these little bottles of beer. And I thought to myself, because it's little bottles of beer, I'd have a couple you know, before dinner. And I thought, oh, I feel a bit tired. I thought maybe I've had too much sun. I looked at the labels of the beer. They were 7.2%. <laughs> 7.2%. They were the strongest thing. So that was it. I just stopped. I just stopped because I'd gone further than I want, than I expected to get. So I'm like, right, right, stop, stop. And then it was a good hour and a half before I, I had a, another drink. Amazing. 
it's, it's extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah. The teachings of Guru Anna. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because men are so conditioned, aren't they? And the fact that you've, 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 you've switched it slightly later on in life is quite interesting. Mate, I love a drink. I mean, I go to the rugby. You know, I, I'm a big rugby fan. I want to have a, I want to have a glass of beer. I go, I'm, I'm out for lunch with a mate of mine tomorrow. I want to, I want to have a nice glass of wine. I really want to have a nice glass of wine. I, I love, I love a whiskey. I love a really peaty whiskey. The difference is, I'm probably now drinking 15% of what I used to, and enjoying it 500% more. This is logical, isn't it? What I'm saying. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, Greg, I wanted to talk to you about um, you. Uh, you took part in Who Do You Think You Are on the BBC, which looked at it's an ancestry show. We looked at your sort of relatives, and there was a really fascinating story on the sort of theme of mental health. Um, in that, your great great grandmother um, had her own issues and actually ended up in a uh, in a hospital, and then ended up dying in hospital. Um, and it was a really um, it was a really impactful emotional. Moment when you realised all of this, yeah. and that this was in your family. Yeah, um, what was that like for you? I felt really terribly saddened by it. Really terribly saddened by it. They showed me a picture of this lady that would have been my grandfather's grandmother. I think it was Victorian era, and they showed me um, what's it called? A census that goes round. And her name was on this census. And I was like, what's, what's this? What's this? And it was, the, it was the census from inside the asylum. And she died inside, inside there. Visions of hell, visions of Lucifer chasing her around. I mean, the poor lady really, really suffered. But also the building that she died in is still there. It's now apartments. I, I, and you went to visit it. I found it really uncomfortable. Really, I felt like I'd got to know this lady because I had her picture with me all the time. They showed me a picture, let me keep it. And I was following this story of my grandfather's family in Plymouth to find, and it, it, was, a, it was a sad story. It had a, his sister that he never knew um, burning to death, his father that he never knew disappearing finding that his father's next wife killed in a car crash. It was just getting worse and worse to the point where I was hoping for a happier ending with this picture of this lady. No, 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 she she died in an in asylum. Yeah, that, that I, I felt choked up there because I felt an affinity with them because they were my family. So, yeah, I did, I did feel really quite saddened by her to the point where, I mean, you don't see, I actually just walked off when we were filming, when I found out, I just walked off. Really? Yeah, and I've never done that. Came back half an hour later. So I'm fine. I'm fine. I just I just need to. And then as I was telling the story again, I started getting started getting choked up about it again. It really shone a light, didn't it, on on mental health provision, you know, hundreds of years ago. What I didn't realise, uh, and 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 it was the it was the, um, the the writings of Darwin that changed the approach to mental illness. Before Darwin, the evolution of species, it was felt because it was the Industrial Revolution, that the pace of life had changed too greatly for a lot of people. And so they, they weren't put in institutions. Um, um, enlightened people were, were letting them live a more rural. So the first time she, she went away to get help, 
she was like on a farm where she did traditional crafts and the feeding of chickens because that's what it was thought that the pace of life had gone to. And she came back a better person, went back again. This is post-Darwin, where it's now we're considering uh, the weaker of the species being, if you like, taken out. So the attitudes... Really changed, they really shifted, didn't they? The attitude towards mental illness really changed uh, since, since Darwin's theory of evolution in that, that it was the weak parts of society that needed cutting out and they treated them more like prisoners then. So this lady must have had a terrible end to her life, mm. I should imagine. Isn't that interesting with Darwin? I mean, if you, you know, it reaches its, its worst... Um, its worst bits, doesn't it? Right-wing politics in the in the nineteen thirties, but um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Attitude that made attitudes towards mental mental health really change. There's a big discussion at the moment about mental health in the hospitality and restaurant industry, um, with you know chefs under a lot of pressure. You know people's the, the financial side of things just being so stressful and the, the the tiny margins. I mean, you've worked in this industry and been around it your entire life, you must see the, the, the mental health epidemic in many respects, which is sort of exploding. There's, there's two things. There's a number of things there, observations. I mean, the Gavroche is closing down. Yes. My mate, Michelle Rujun, I mean, absolute British institution uh, closing down, which is, but then, you know, I'm friends with Michelle and he wants a better work-life balance. But then there's also how we as the public perceive restaurants and we have no understanding of what it takes and the work it takes, but also the misunderstanding of chefs and people completely misunderstanding the pressure that those chefs are under. Now, when you go out to eat, you don't care that the chef's having a tough day. You are paying good money. You want your food in perfect condition in a short space of time. The pressure going on in that kitchen is just extraordinary. To deliver, deliver, deliver near on perfection over and over again in incredible heat, it's just absolutely extraordinary. The pressure those boys and girls put themselves under. And I don't know any other profession like it. I really don't. It's not as if you go, well, if you went there to eat and it wasn't great that day, you go, well, he might have, he might have had a tough day. She might not be feeling well, I understand. No, you don't understand. You will start giving the front of house crap to get it right. And you probably won't go back again. Then that's the end of that business. I, I remember we took some contestants to a restaurant on MasterChef, famous restaurant, I won't say which one. And when they got there, the people that owned the restaurant, they said to our three finalists, look, there you go. We care about the, our food, obviously, but it all comes from our experiences. It comes from the heart, our memories as children or, or our favourite holidays or a loved one. It's got to be about emotion. So there you go. There's our kitchen. Cook us a dish each, but it's got to be from you. As rappers would say, I think, keep it real. All right. So these three finalists came in with this dish full of love and care and passion. And, and the guys who owned the restaurant, they sat and ate it and said how wonderful it was. And social media, I got inundated. You see, no reason for chefs to be angry. Look how happy they look. What can be done with a few kind words? No, the restaurant is shut. 
that the restaurant is not open. That is, there are not people flying in from all over Europe paying hundreds of pounds and these guys' reputation on the line at this point. Extraordinary business. Extraordinary business. So much pressure on, on, those, on those chefs. So much pressure. I mean, the hours that they work, they're in the kitchen at you know, seven in the morning. and Listen, the, the, this, it's changing. The environment is changing. Uh, people aren't doing the hours that they did do. Uh, people's salaries are going up, which means restaurants are becoming less and less and less profitable and closing down more and more and more. I never, ever order tap water. I always wonder when people do. And I, I'm, I'm in a minority. I go, why do you do that? Well, it's just tap water. It's, it's free, is it? Is it? Who's paying for the chair? Who's paying for the table? Who's paying for the electricity? Who's paying the rent? Who's paying to bring it to you? Who's paying for the glass? Who's paying for the glass to be washed up? Well, do you know any other business you're going there? Try and buy a car. I'm going to buy the car. What you got for nothing? It's, these businesses are hard work. They're hard to run and they don't all make millions of pounds. In fact, they are really struggling right now. The cost of staff has gone up. The cost of food has gone up. People aren't eating out as much because there's a cost of living crisis and we've all got less money. We, we're in a bit of a pickle here with this. You used to have some restaurants yourself. Yeah, I've never made them work. I had one, a cafe, that was really busy at the weekend and I had partners. And actually what I really wanted was like a greasy spoon, but they made me do something kind of Ottolenghi-esque, which I never wanted to do. Yeah. And the busiest, the busiest we were was at the weekends when people were coming in for brunch, which is what... I only ever, ever wanted. Uh, so I didn't make any money out of that, so I sold that. The other one was the Bermondsey Hotel. I loved this. I didn't own it. They gave me a slice of the take to have my name on it and to be there. And we did that for about a year. And I loved that. There's no pressure at all. Mm. Just go in there and, yeah, 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 just have a good time. I, I enjoyed that. John Turoad, Pearls of Wisdom here with John Turoad. Remember, John, John Turoad, I think, is a much underestimated chef. He's been around a lot. Of, he was a big part of Conran restaurants when they were absolutely booming, when they were, the chain, when they were changing the face of British eateries, because that's what Conran did. Listen to this from John Turoad, and he's absolutely right. Lower people's expectation and then deliver above. I have never, ever been disappointed in a McDonald's. I've never, ever been disappointed in a KFC. Rarely am I disappointed in a fish and chip shop. Rarely am I disappointed in a calf. Regularly, I've been disappointed with fine dining. John Turoad, he's absolutely right. Lower people's expectation, deliver above. The best food businesses are the ones that don't require table service. Your expectation is lower. Mm. No one's serving you. You want something, go back up to the counter and order it again. Mm. <laughs> they're, the be they're the best ones. <laughs> They're the best ones. They're the cheapest. They're the cheapest ones to run, right? Or you just need kitchen stuff. I was going to ask you, um, Greg, about your autobiography, which was a good few many years ago now. Um, it caused a bit of a stir at the time because it was one very powerful and emotional story which you, which you told um, about the fact that you were abused by your babysitter's husband mm. um, when you were just eight years old, and mm. that you never really told anybody about it. No, 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 no. No, I never did. I did tell I did tell my mum when I was older, but she didn't really seem to want to know. I didn't tell anybody at the time. She but, didn't want to know? No. 
She didn't want to discuss it. Um, Why was that? I've no idea. I didn't go any further. I've no idea. I think she said if you'd have told me at the time, obviously I would have done something about it. But uh, he told me not to tell anybody. And and I'd, I'd say the same now as I say to said to journalists at the time, for young people who are listening, or if there's any young people listening, it's not your fault. You're not complicit in it. You're not. You're not. You're, you're being pushed into something. It's not your, get out and just tell somebody. Get out and tell somebody. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't. I don't know how that affected me. I've never brought that up in therapy, so I've got no idea. But uh, yeah, he used to. If she went out, then he would touch me and get me to touch him, and quite a, and kiss me as well. Quite a horrendous um, situation for a young boy, and that happened. I reckon that probably happened a handful of times. Um, and. I don't really know how it stopped. I think it stopped because I was I I was big, I said no. I think unless somebody got wind of it, I don't know. I don't know. Or maybe we stopped. Horrendous, isn't it? Awful. Horrendous. Yeah. 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 So that's my memories of that. But I was very young. Mm. I was very very young. Was it quite cathartic writing about it? Or no. No, no, no. I just wanted to tell the truth. I mean, I'm sitting here with you answering questions honestly, and I've always answered questions honestly. And I think that might be the reason why I've had so many negative headlines is because I just tell the truth mm. about stuff. Um, someone asked me a question, and I, and I, I tell them the truth. No, I didn't find it cathartic. Um, it, it, it's upsetting now thinking about it. Um, I can see me as a young boy and I can see him and I can smell him and it's, it's, yeah, it's not, it's not nice. It, it's, uh, it, it's not nice. And it makes me wonder how many other people may have suffered and we didn't really speak about it or God forbid it's still happening to somebody now. But if it is, if it is as a young person, if by chance any young person's listening to this, just get out there and tell somebody it's not your fault. It's not your fault. You're not part of it. It's ha it's being made to happen to you. You're not making it happen. Mm. Um, I, was, I wanted to ask you, Greg, about um, lockdown and, and COVID and the pandemic. Um, for many people, they really struggle, particularly people with anxiety. How were you during that time? Uh, at the start, I was in a panic. My, my, my rashes appeared on my legs. I was, in a, I was in a real panic. I've worked all my life and I wasn't able to work. And I've got a family to look after. I'm the only one working. There's Anna, Sid, um, Massimo and Rena, Anna's mum and dad. And it was a massive panic. I mean, I'd never experienced anything like it. Most of us hadn't. And then I realised by reducing all the bills down and adding up what I had, that actually we could survive with a different lifestyle indefinitely and I had a really nice time. I mean, we're really, really fortunate that we were together as a family because my daughter Libby was living there as well. Uh, we're very, very fortunate in that we got land. We got an old farmhouse. We had land, two little rescue dogs. I did the shopping. I cooked the lunch for the family every day. I had a bath, splish splash, with Sid every night. I ate well. I exercised. I had a really good time once I calmed down. I think 
my grandparents' generation, they used to talk about whether you had a good or a bad war. I think in years to come, we were going to turn around and figure out whether we had a good or a bad COVID. <laughs> we came back to work and you could clearly, I could draw a clear line between people that had had a healthy and an unhealthy COVID. There were people that were half the size and there were people that mm. were twice the size. Mm. I, I actually had a really highly enjoyable time. But I, I realised that I might have been in a minority here. Um, so I want to apologise for that. But being together with all the family with enough space mm. was, was and being forced to do nothing but be at home was great. In saying that, uh, I didn't do nothing. I, I built the health business mm. that was Show Me Fit that's now Greg Wallace Health. So we did that. I remember my wife saying, you've turned my house into a television studio. <laughs> <laughs> um, finally, Greg, um, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. If you had one tip for someone who's listening who could, who may be struggling with anxiety or depression or any of these things, what would you say to them? If you're suffering at all, then go and get help. Come on. We've gone well past the stage where there's any stigma here. Okay, go and get help. Why suffer when you don't have to? There are some amazing people out there. Make some inquiries. Go and get help. People care. They do want to listen. They do want to help. You can make yourself better with help. You won't do it without any help. Wake up and smell the hummus. Go and get some help. Feel better. On that note, thank you, Greg. It's been a pleasure. Cheers, mate. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You can find me on Twitter at Miratom. And if you like what you've heard, rate us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to get new episodes automatically. Thanks for listening.